Hello and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato and this is Round 2, the Styrian Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton bounced back in a big way in the second race of the season, dominating qualifying with a sublime pole lap in the wet and cruising to victory. Red Bull Racing tried, but never really stood a chance. Off the podium, though, the battle was more fraught. Racing Point rocketed from lowly grid spots to duel with McLaren and Renault, and key strategy calls led to a last lap shootout for fifth place. To dissect all of the action, I'm joined by ESPN's Lawrence Edmondson. Lawrence, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. I'm still slightly confused. Was it the Steer Mark Grand Prix or the Styrian <laughs> Grand Prix? Because I'm looking at my Pirelli uh, lap count of when everyone pitted, and it says Steer Mark, and it just threw me just then as you did the intro. Yeah. Because I was thinking, I, I thought it was a Styrian too, and I, I don't know what's going on anymore. It's all very confusing. You know, the Formula One account was using Austrian Grand Prix for a long time, clearly stuck in last weekend. So it's confused everybody racing at the same track twice. They should have changed the track name as well, at least, to make it really clear. Yeah, I mean, A1 ring, Austrite <laughs> yeah. ring, they, they've got choices. They, they, could, they could have gone with it. But um, at least it's, it's a problem we'll never have again. Yeah, hopefully. Well, presumably, you know, um, presumably. Yeah, I mean, not that I don't like the Red Bull ring. It's, um, as you said, produced two pretty good races, one completely wacky race and one kind of more straightforward, but still, I think, entertaining race. Well, this is what I would like to start with, because Formula One has never had this configuration of races before, two back-to-backs at the same circuit, never mind two championship races at the same circuit in a, in a single season. And, you know, I'm still a little bit cynical that the double-ups we're going to get later in the year will give us two races sort of as interesting and entertaining as this. I think I feel like we got a little bit lucky, but there were still, um, let's say, continuities between the two races. Teams were still able to learn things across the two Grand Prix. Uh, and I guess we kind of really saw that, particularly with the tyres, wasn't it? That was one of the key things teams took from the first weekend to next to try and build ideas for this second Grand Prix. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, most teams will say at the end of a weekend, oh, well, if we could go and do it again, we'd do it entirely differently <laughs> and we would have not made that mistake and all this sort of stuff. So now it was a chance to prove it. Um, and uh, I, I think there was some fairly big differences between the two. It was much hotter uh, the previous weekend. And then we had a massive rainstorm on Saturday. So, of course, qualifying was wet. But it also meant that the track changed a bit. And so um, I think the teams found that maybe the tyres didn't act in quite the same way as they expected. Um, We didn't hear much from Lewis, but he did still manage to get one moaning about the (laughs) tyres where he said they feel feel very, very different to to last week. So um, I think a few teams were still learning a little bit as they went. And, you know, that, I think that is good if we are going to have to do some more doubled up races. We know we've got one in Silverstone, but the other thing about the Silverstone races is that they're actually changing the compounds uh, for the second race. So um, I think that would actually be, be interesting. But I think the thing is, if you've got a good racetrack, um, then having a second race there isn't the end of the world, especially when it's in a part of the world where um, you've got changing weather and, uh, and you know, every, all these little things kind of move around and change. But um, I'm I'm kind of glad we're not going there for a third race in a row. Uh, you know, I think I think that that would have been overkill, and I don't know what they would have called it. Um, so uh, yeah, n- nice to move on to Hungary, but I, I didn't think it was a disaster at all having two races there at the start of the year. Yeah, I think three would definitely have been pushing it, but we'll uh, maybe look maybe later down the season when we're trying to make up numbers, maybe we'll get to three and we'll be able to evaluate how the third one was actually the best of them. Never know, we won't know till we get there really. Uh, of course, what people really wanted to know from these first two races, and I'm not completely certain we've got 
a clear picture, other than probably Mercedes at the front of the field, is the pecking order of the field this season, of course, because it's been a long time since preseason testing, which only tells us so much. And the first race, as you say, did seem so wacky compared to an ordinary Grand Prix. I mean, almost half the field had retired and there were mistakes here and there and unreliability playing a factor. This weekend, the race itself was a little bit more ordinary, but because of the way that weather interfered with the lead-up to this race, with qualifying being very wet, no practice three, and that kind of having a bit of a knock-on to the way teams ran practice two, do you feel like we do have much of a grasp on, maybe not so much Mercedes, of course, but the midfield or even Red Bull racing down if we want to be a little bit more generous and, and how this season is going to stack up on the basis of these two races? Well, it's interesting. You talk about Mercedes there, but... um. Having talked to uh, some people in the team, they are saying, and this is always what F1 engineers do just because of the nature of how they work, that they need three different types of track before they can start to make judgments on, on where they are. And they saw some signs that Red Bull does have strength in, on certain types of corners and also in hot temperatures. So if you cast your mind back to Friday practice and it was pretty warm and uh, Lewis looked nowhere, but that was because of a setup choice they took on the car, which was incorrect. Uh, but even Valtteri was struggling to um, keep up with Max and Max looked good on long run pace as well and uh, Mercedes really honestly believed that if they'd run a race in those conditions on Friday um, despite having all the knowledge they had from the previous weekend Red Bull would have run them properly close and potentially have been ahead so um, I think if when we go to say the Hungaroring which is usually very hot um, has some low speed corners uh, and we saw that the Red Bull was very good in low speed corners um, when the tyres were still fresh, uh, then I think, you know, we, we could see Red Bull close in. Uh, you know, the, the thing about engineers was they always take a very pessimistic view of what they have <laughs> r- rather than an optimistic one. So I, I'd, I'd still probably say that uh, Mercedes are clearly ahead. And I think on the balance of circuits that we're going to have over the year, you know, they're the team that are probably going to win the championship, probably going to uh, look best. But I, I think there is still a little bit of hope for Red Bull. And the other impressive thing about Red Bull was bringing an update that um, clearly solved some of the issues on the car so quickly. Uh, so they seem to have a bit of a handle on, on, on the direction of their development, which is more than, be, than can be said for some teams. But as you said, mi- mi- midfield battle is, is, is very exciting. Um, and uh, I, I reckon Racing Point are clear third fastest. They, funnily enough for them, a team which usually operationally is so slick, uh, they didn't get the best from these two weekends at all. But um, Perez's pace in the race on Sunday, uh, you know, it was matching Bottas at times and Bottas wasn't hanging around. He was trying to catch Verstappen. So that was a real sign of, of, of where that car is. And, uh, you know, we saw in the way that he caught Albon, it's faster than one of the Red Bulls. But um, but we have this this constant question, don't we? Why is one Red Bull so slow and mm. why is the other one so quick? Is it just a drive? I mean, I don't know. Do, do you have an explanation for that? Did, did you hear anything from Albon that... That stood up as a reason why he was so slow? I was interested to hear Elborn after the race because he kind of suggested that there was a reason. He said something to the effect that he was confident he knew what the reason was, but 44 seconds off the lead, and I mean, Verstappen made that stop towards the end, so it's not clear. I guess that would have, what, added 30 seconds to his time. So still a lot behind Verstappen as well. You know, it'd have to be a pretty... I feel like the problem, a problem that big would almost have to be obvious to anyone looking on the outside. and didn't seem to be any damage. And I feel like that's something they would normally point to anyway in a situation like this that, I mean, I'll be very curious to see. But then on the other hand, you have to say his race last week, while still not on Verstappen's pace, was much better than this. So 
and I mean, it's an advantage of having these back-to-back races, right? We know it's not just he's no good at this circuit. So I will be interested to see, but as we'll talk a little bit about uh, later, Albon's lack of pace compared to Verstappen was was so dramatic that it did potentially have an impact on this race. Yeah, that's right. Um, he, you know, And that gets him into Gasly territory. That was one of the reasons mm. that Red Bull was so upset with Gasly last year and, uh, and Albon took his place. I think Albon is... Um, is already operating on a higher level than Gasly. But yeah, that gap was, was very strange to me. And um, I actually joined Christian Horner's Zoom call a little bit late, so I missed the very first answer. But um, all, all I heard of um, from Horner was that, uh, you know, that they need to work with Alex to, to find better pace on heavy fuel. So it didn't sound like there was an immediate issue. It sounded, you know, like there was, there was something else. So I don't know. I, I hope I'm being a bit harsh on, on Alex and there was a very good reason and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll prove me wrong in, in the next few races. But yeah, that was a bit disappointing after such a promising opening race. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, but then racing points, go back to them. You know, that car is very quick. So quick that it's already um, being protested <laughs> by rivals. So that, 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 that's, all, that's always a good sign in some ways that you've got a quick car is, is when your rivals start digging around to try and find out what's illegal on it. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if we've got time to go into that here and uh, the intricacies of a of a protest. Perhaps we'll try a little bit later. But I do like the idea that if they are running last year's Mercedes, it's taken them only a week to catch up with the number of protests against this year's Mercedes cars. So they are on the same track. I'll be a little bit behind. Um, just finally, before we do get into the race, I do want to mention. Ferrari. We can't talk about them too much considering they didn't really even enter the race. There's not a lot to say, but talking about the way practices unfold in the last couple of rounds and trying to assess the pace of this team, you sort of alluded to it earlier. This is a team that has brought some upgrades already, rushed them forward from next week to this week, just gone, and potentially some this coming week as well to come. And you'd have to hope more after that as well, considering the pace that seemed to eventuate. They still seem a little bit lost in terms of where that car is, it, qualifying was obviously not convincing, although it was in the wet. Practice times didn't show much, but they seemed a little bit confident. I mean, do we should we expect more from Ferrari in the next couple of weeks? Or as much as Racing Point seems to have taken a massive step forward, has Ferrari slid enormously backwards? I think there's no doubt that Ferrari have, have gone backwards. Um, and it's just a question of, of how quickly they can arrest that slide and, and, and turn it into something more worthwhile. But... Um, the indication is that, you know, the Hungaroring should be a circuit that suits it a little bit better. So, um, you know, there's a chance they move back up through that midfield. But, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about Ferrari in terms of midfield runners. We should be talking about them as a top three. They've got the budget there. They've got everything they need. Uh, you know, they're supposed to have two very good drivers, um, but you know, it didn't work out the weekend either, did it? <laughs> but um, that that there were signs from Friday that uh, that some of those developments were, were, were going the right way. Um but they needed a race to see it. You know, the, the one thing they needed right now uh, is, is time on track because the fundamental issue comes down to a correlation uh, problem between the wind tunnel and what's happening on track. Um, we've heard that from teams before. It's not that unusual. But, um, but Ferrari needed time on track and they really needed a kind of fairly solid race, even if they'd been running in the, in the midfield pack. Uh, just to get a handle on on what was going on with that car and whether the stuff they brought this weekend works, and they didn't get that, and uh, and that was really only one man's fault, Charles Leclerc. And uh, I, I don't know if you listened to Bonotto afterwards, but we we, we didn't get a press session; they, mm-hmm. they they cancelled that. But he did he did talk to TVs, and he kind of had his lines rehearsed, and he, his line was basically just. It's always a pain when the drivers <laughs> don't make it past the first time. And it just it seemed, it seemed to be underplaying it slightly. It's, it's always a pain. As if like, you know, uh, it's like, oh, uh, it, it, it's always a pain when the boiler packs up you know, <laughs> on Monday morning. 
but it, it, it's very strange but anyway um so I, I think they're obviously keeping everything very internal that they, they don't want to talk about their problems too much in public uh which i guess is understandable but um the problems are very public well we'll wait and see how that one pans out that dynamic inside that team gonna be very interesting this season if only they could finish a race with both cars it'll be good i look forward to it moving on to the race proper though we've talked about how mercedes sort of found a bit of a sweet spot this weekend compared to last week i mean it's set up by lewis hamilton's phenomenal qualifying lap 1.2 second margin over max Verstappen, and max obviously very good in the rain underlined a i guess how competent that car is but also how good uh, form hamilton finds himself in this in this weekend uh not much really to talk about about hamilton's race per se because he was fairly comfortably out in in the lead out front uh, but there was a little bit of interplay with Max Verstappen. He was second. He started second, held that position for the first stint of the race, for most of the race, in fact. But ultimately, Mercedes had this numerical advantage with Valtteri Bottas in third. Uh, when both cars started to push, you could see Verstappen being squeezed between them, being sandwiched. And fairly quickly, Red Bull Racing went from, if they had any idea of being, let's say, progressive in their strategy, had to become defensive uh, and had to cover off Valtteri Bottas with an early stop. We mentioned it earlier that Albon was way off the pace, but I guess this really Ill- illustrates, in much the same way Pierre Gasly did roughly this time last year, how important that second driver can be. Not everyone likes to hear about drivers playing a second driver role, but um, Bottas sort of did in this race. He didn't have to go out of his way to do it, but he certainly did in terms of distracting Verstappen. He really needed someone to to try and play into that and maybe distract Hamilton in this sense. Yeah, so um, it it was interesting, wasn't it? Because Verstappen, after his pit stop, was complaining about, you know, why did we pit? Like, you know, Lewis has just kind of got a free pit stop now and, and gone on to fresher tyres and then they had to remind him that actually Max you're not racing Hamilton you're racing Valtteri behind you and um and that all kind of came about I think Mercedes uh that they, they were looking to undercut if, if they could um but the gap they were looking for to Verstappen and able to do that was 1.4 seconds and uh and they felt that that would be enough to move on to the mediums and leapfrog Verstappen and then they were pretty confident they could hold that um but Red Bull kind of countered that uh, when I think it was, the gap was around 1.8 seconds and uh, and brought Verstappen in so that he wasn't immediately undercut. They knew it was going to create a difficult situ- situation at the end of the race, but hey, there's lots of things that can happen. But yeah, to get to, to, to your point is if Albon had been closer and had been able to undercut Bottas, then Bottas wouldn't have been able to do that long run um, you know, into, uh, in, into lap 34, which gave him a 10 lap advantage over Max. And uh, ultimately, given the pace difference in the cars uh that's what gave Bottas that position by by the end of the race but um but yeah it was, it was well worked by Mercedes but you're right um if Red Bull had a second car there they would have had more options to try and uh you know put Bottas under a bit of pressure rather than allow him to basically take checkmate wasn't it by, by going those extra 10 laps and having the uh, the fresher tires at the end to attack Verstappen not to say that Verstappen didn't put up a great fight against him, uh, you know, it didn't make it easy, but um, it was always going that way. And even Max admitted that afterwards. He was like, well, you know, I, I kept him at bay for one lap, but I knew the next lap that he would get passed against. So, um, but, you know, that, that there's a number of things there, you know, and fundamentally the, the thing that it comes down to is that the Red Bull isn't, isn't quite quick enough or wasn't quite quick enough on Sunday 
to fight Mercedes in a in a straight fight. Almost a little bit unusual that the fight for the lead should be the most straightforward strategically, but that's just about all there was to it. Other than to say that clearly Mercedes has more of a handle on the sensors, the electronics issues that that plagued the gearbox this time last week that prevented it from maximizing his pace. I, I suppose it's a bit of a shame that this race didn't come first for Red Bull Racing because in that situation, Max probably would have presented a much more substantial threat to Lewis Hamilton, maybe just straight up on the track. Uh, just in time in many respects for Mercedes and Red Bull Racing must be ruining the fact that their retirement problem, their their reliability problem ending in retirement came a week earlier. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at the missed opportunities at the start of this year uh, for Red Bull, it was the first race. It wasn't the second race. I think they maximised or certainly max maximised the uh, potential of the car uh, to, uh, on Sunday. So um, yeah, uh, I, 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 th- I think that's just, um, that, that's what they'll look back at. And with, with, with some confidence that they've, they also made progress, but um, yeah, the, the Mercedes looked weakest at the first race, uh, and then they seemed to get a hold of that. They were still worried about suspension loads throughout the weekend um, going going to the limit, but this is pretty much the hardest track for that. And I think this was the reason why we saw so many problems in the first race is that uh, when they turn up at Melbourne for an, a usual season opener, the cars are as fragile, but that track doesn't really hammer them quite as hard. This track is a real car breaker and usually they come midway through the year and uh, and also, you know, they've been able to analyse updates as they come and kind of, you know, strengthen the car in certain places should should they see anything that's slightly worrying. Here they were straight into it and, um, and, and you know, that's what created the problems for Mercedes last, uh, last week. But then, again, amazing how good these Formula 1 teams are that they can mm. turn it around and not have the same problem the following week. It is extremely impressive. Only a couple of days between them and a couple of days up to the next race as well. The battle for the podium was pretty much just between those three. As we said, Alex Albon counted himself out pretty early. In fact, it was about a pit stop's distance between him and Hamilton by around about lap 20, quite early in the race. Uh, and it only grew from there. In the end, it was 44 seconds, as we said. Uh, the battle for fourth, pretty much. It didn't seem like there'd be much of a battle for fourth. It was going to be more fifth. But by the end of the race, certainly fourth was on the table. Was really exciting. In fact, all of the, the rest of the top 10, or the up to top nine, we should say, was this interlinked, interesting midfield battle that sort of points to where we're probably going to be heading this season between Racing Point, Renault and McLaren, depending on how well they can execute on a given weekend. The first sort of part of this battle we should start off with, and, and the best way to go through this perhaps is just to take it almost lap by lap, uh, was with Renault. Renault looking to capitalise, looking to make good on what was a little bit of a disappointing first weekend with one retirement and one sort of small points finish with Esteban Ocon. It was Ocon leading Ricardo. Ricardo, one of the few drivers to start the race on the medium tyre. And it certainly seemed to be paying off for him early in the race. He had great pace on that tyre. But to just take a step back for a moment, we surprised so few cars tried anything different in the first stint given tyre choice was free for everybody. And most cars ended up just starting the race on the soft tyre as probably would have been the case had they not had that free choice. Um, not really, because I, I, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I, I, I guess... With the soft, uh, you know, you guarantee that slightly better start as well. But you also give yourself uh, the option so that if you need to pit very early for whatever reason, the hard is still is, is still there as an option. Whereas if you're kind of looking medium and then you're going medium hard, then you're missing out the soft tire entirely, which is a quicker one. So I, I don't know. Um, it, it seemed like it was uh, a fairly straightforward decision, wasn't it? And I saw there was an interview with Toto ahead of the race with Sky Sports, and they they were all hinting that everyone would start on mediums, and then Toto was like, "Mediums? <laughs> do you mean softs?" And then you know, so at that point, it was clear what what Mercedes were going to do. So um, 
Uh, I, I don't know the exact reason why why the soft proved to be the the best starting tire, really, to be honest. But um, but it was clear that the medium was the was a better race tire, and uh, I think we saw that you know throughout. Whenever a car was on the mediums and another car was on the softs, it tended to be the car on the mediums that uh, looked better, and that's what happened in that early battle between uh, Ricardo and Ocon. Is that um, you know is, is that we saw Ricardo really hustling uh, Ocon around the track um, and uh, really. You know, maybe Renault should have asked their drivers to to, to switch places uh, in in a kind of more cordial manner. But then, you know, I, I guess it's fairly early in that relationship as well, and it was fairly early in the race, so it's quite hard to to, to ask someone like Ocon to move over because he, he he tends to be quite feisty with teammates. And I mean, it wasn't to become obvious how close that battle was going to end up. He lost a couple of seconds ultimately in that fight. Did Ricardo and Ocon eventually retired not long after that? Uh, and that could have made the difference towards the end of the race, but who was to predict the end of the race was going to be quite so closely fought? They were both chasing Carlos Sainz at this point, who'd started third, slipped back behind Bottas and Albon, which probably was to be expected. Uh, neither of them were really catching them so long as they battled, and once Ricardo got past on lap 19, didn't quite have the tie performance to make it stick. And this ended up kind of being the keystone of the midfield race was how McLaren responded with Carlos Sainz. Ricardo was approaching and and getting into undercut range, and perhaps like we saw with Verstappen trying to defend against an undercut against Bottas, Sainz pulled the trigger first with McLaren, and this really cascaded into everything that happened in the midfield thereafter yeah that's right so I, I think that was entirely what McLaren was thinking you know they held the track position they wanted to keep that and they didn't want to be undercut um by uh, any of the cars that were kind of showing decent pace behind um they also knew that they were going on to uh, the medium tires after that unfortunately that transition to the medium tires was slow so that that, that kind of ruled science out of that battle and it uh, really ruined his race you've got to remember he qualified third it was an incredible performance on on saturday so a real shame that uh, he couldn't capitalize on it in in the race and yeah it was that slow pit stop and then coming out in uh, a bit of traffic uh, that he had to overtake and pushing hard on those uh, on those mediums once he got back up to speed and uh, that you know that ruined the race for him because by the end uh, of uh, or by the time that he was kind of had Lando Norris behind him uh, who was on much fresher tyres at that point he didn't have the pace to go and take the battle to the cars in front but Norris did and you know that all came down to that slow pit stop and uh, and the laps that he then had to put on those tyres afterwards that really, really ruined them. But you're right, it, it then kicked off behind. And it really, I mean, at that point in time, if you were Renault, if you were Daniel Ricciardo, that's all music to your ears, the idea that Carlos Sainz has had a bit of a dodgy stop, got a little bit bogged down in traffic. Uh, it was very easy for Ricardo to cover him on, on lap 37, emerged in front of him. It seemed like the job was done. But ironically, in the long term, it didn't really work out for him because Sainz getting held back, essentially, with the slow stop, with the traffic, opened the door for Racing Point at this point, who were starting in the midfield, Perez even further back in 17th, starting to embark on a recovery. They were able to make their first stops relatively late and emerge... Well, Stroll certainly emerged in front of Science. Perez, let's say, pretty much exactly alongside him. And I thought it was really impressive, actually. You don't always see it happen in this way, but Perez was able to manage... He was able to fight for that position and win that position on his outlap, despite having the cooler tyres, which were mediums as well, so warm up a little bit slower. I guess really underlined, A, the danger McLaren could see in Racing Point early by trying to cover it off, but B, just how fast that racing point was yeah i think so absolutely and it was, it was interesting wasn't it how, how racing point played that because stroll was almost an inconvenience he was actually <laughs> ahead of perez where, when science made a pit stop so they pitted stroll on lap 33 so one lap after science uh, knowing full well that of course with science's slow pit stop if everything goes well 
Stroll gets that position automatically, and uh, and you know and that's what that, that's what's happened. Uh, and then Perez was uh, the, you know they left him out as late as they possibly could. That was the aggressive move by Racing Point because he stayed out an extra five laps on on top of Stroll, and that put him just just in line with uh, Science as he came back out, and as you say managed to pass. But yeah, I think that just speaks to the pace of that racing point at the moment and uh, and what a sorted race car it is because uh, it was by far and away the 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 quickest car in the midfield behind the the front the front two runners and it was just a matter of making sure that all the strategy played into place not so much in in in, in stroll's situation he seemed uh it's it's the same problem we have with stroll isn't it it's <laughs> that he doesn't seem to quite get the best out of, he's not a bad race driver he's not a bad qualifier but he doesn't seem to quite get the best out of the tires and maximize every opportunity and then looked a bit nervous in uh, in trying to to make moves as well and i think racing point uh, probably knew that quite well and uh, it was quite clear that they made sure that they shuffled those two drivers in in the pit stops and that ultimately uncorked that pace the idea that they didn't have to pass carlos Sainz, and i guess it's debatable or completely hypothetical how long they might have had to stay behind him especially if perez had to get past stroll first or be allowed past stroll first to attack Sainz subsequently and for what looked like a great situation for Daniel Ricciardo with Sainz stuck behind actually turned into a much worse one because those racing point cars well certainly Sergio Perez made pretty quick work of of the Renault and admittedly Ricciardo was struggling a bit on the softs didn't really find the pace he expected on the softer compound but you could see for the rest of the race really what what might have been more the case with Lance Stroll stuck behind him uh in the end what could have been potentially a, a fifth place finish for Daniel Ricciardo slipped away at the hands of of both racing point cars. So it went from quite a good situation really for Renault in the end to not quite maximizing what should have been the ultimate pace of that machine. Yeah, it felt like they were they were hanging on a bit, didn't it? And um it's it's a tricky one. I I feel like Ricardo probably got the best from it, but as as the race panned out to go back to our question about, you know, what was the better starting tire? I I think that kind of, you know, proved it a bit that if you put yourself on the soft for the for, for the second stint having had to make a pit stop around the same time as everyone else to make sure you weren't undercut and whatever, uh, then you were going to struggle a bit towards the end, uh, even though the cars are lighter and all the rest of it. And in theory, you know, they should be able to go longer. But um, but yeah, it, it, it was marginal. It was very close. They, they, they nearly got it right at Renault. But um, yeah, in, in the end, it was they just didn't quite have the pace to... Uh, to live with the with the racing points uh it, okay it took stroll to make that kind of slightly clumsy move up at turn three uh for it to completely unravel for renault but um i think that was uh just the result of, of an underlying pace deficit the move itself was interesting daniel ricardo was very confident after the race that he was going to be well couldn't have been handed it back by the positions that that ultimately fell but that there'd be some kind of penalty to earn a place back uh it I don't want to say it had shades of the move Rosberg tried onto Hamilton a couple of years ago because it really wasn't quite the same thing, but it certainly was clumsy. Was there grounds for for Daniel to think that he was going to get some position back from that? Um, I, in my opinion, no. But then, if you look at a lot of what people have been penalised for, you know, uh, fairly recently, you know, if you look at the Albon Hamilton one, I still think that was a racing incident. So that's where I draw my line. Um, so I think what Stroll did uh, was clumsy. It wasn't. A particularly finesse move i can understand why if you're in ricardo's shoes you'd be upset but you know it it he, he had the pace to be able to get and put his nose up there and you know and sometimes that happens in racing the fact they both went off the track i i, I guess that's where ricardo would have the problem is that you know he didn't leave him in room to race and didn't even have room to race himself <laughs> uh so um so yeah maybe, maybe there's an argument there but the steward said it was a racing incident and 
uh, I kind of agree with that kind of thing. You know, it's um, I'd I'd rather see drivers trying to take an, a, a lunge like that that late in the race and have that excitement than we have a situation where they're all too scared to do it because they know a five second penalty is going to drop them, you know, f- further down. So I can understand Ricardo's frustration. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't a well executed move by Stroll, but I don't want to get to a position where we don't have uh, attempts like that and you know racing right down to down to the wire well stroll was miring himself with potentially having to go before the steward sergio perez was absolutely maximizing the pace of the car up to a point of course when he had a bit of a coming together with alex albon shows just how quick that car was we've already said this that it was quicker than one of the the red bull racing cars i thought it was good as well to hear that he had made the call after he'd broken that front wing the team tried to box him because it was quite severe damage this wasn't uh, in the way that Verstappen's front wing was a little bit damaged. This was pretty much coming off the car. Uh, he decided to stay out for the last lap uh, and ended up being able to rescue positions from that. He lost only one position at the end of the day to Landry Norris, who we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. But a good call from the cockpit. We don't always see drivers being able to intervene in that way, but really the right decision in the end to, to still take home quite a quite a few points. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Actually. I didn't know who made that call, but that's, um, that's great to hear, yeah. And uh, I guess there's always a risk that... Um, you, you run you run the risk of getting a black and orange flag and being told you know that either you know you, you need to pit or that you get a penalty at the end of it all because i mean uh, we all remember uh, i think leclerc's car losing pieces in mm. japan uh and, and them hitting lewis and that didn't look very good so uh, you have to be careful with that as well but um no i mean from a pure racer's point of view uh that doesn't really surprise me from perez because that's exactly what he is so uh yeah to, to to salvage what he could from that albeit after you know a botch overtaken move gave him the problem. But yeah, that, that's good to hear that he did that. I, I wasn't aware of that. The final piece of this puzzle, though, after the Racing Point cars managed to get past Daniel Ricciardo, having jumped Carlos Sainz, was Lando Norris, who again delivered a, a really thrilling end to the race. Last Only the last couple of laps, really, from Norris's perspective. Uh, and highlighted, I guess, something interesting about that McLaren car, that particularly towards the end of the race is what seems to be like on low fuel. And we see that in qualifying as well, I suppose really seems to come alive. Now, we talked about Sergio Perez having one of the more aggressive uh, late stops of the front runners. In fact, one of the most aggressive stops of just about anyone in the field. But Lando Norris went one lap later, stopped on lap 39 onto the medium tyre and just kept making up ground. Fortunately for him, I suppose, is that Lance Stroll was caught behind Daniel Ricciardo, couldn't get past him in the same way Sergio Perez did. But in the end, that meant he capitalised a great deal off that clumsy move and, as luck would have it, managed just to snatch that final place from that damaged Sergio Perez. Yeah, it was very impressive, wasn't it? Um, And then I heard, I don't know if you know any more about this, so you can shine light on it, but I heard a radio message, um, I think it was after Science's pit stop, where they said to Norris, uh, this will become the Germany situation. I heard that. What is the Germany situation? I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) No one's clear on that. Well, I have to look that way. I have to find out. Because I was thinking Germany, well, Germany last year was where, I was trying to remember exactly what happened to Norris. I was like, this can't apply to a dry race in Austria. I I don't know what's going on. Anyway, so the the Germany situation turned out to be very profitable for him, didn't it? Because, um, yeah, he... I assume it only meant that, uh, look, we're going as long as we possibly can uh, to put you on as fresh as possible tyres at the end so that compared to the cars you'll you'll be racing against, uh, you'll be looking good. Maybe something to do with the fact that they knew that he would come out of his pit stop behind Sainz but would still be allowed back through. Could have been that, I don't know, because obviously uh, Lando maybe would have wanted otherwise to pit slightly earlier to make sure that he came out 
ahead of science, taking advantage of science's slow pit stop. But um, yeah, the right strategy move as a team from McLaren uh, to pit uh, Norris pretty much as late as anyone in the midfield. Um, you know, certainly of the midfield runners that were that were competing for those points. And um, yeah, and then take the fight to them at the end. And, you know, it worked perfectly. And again, it was, you know, uh, my colleague Nate has dubbed him last lap Lando now because, <laughs> you know, the last the last two races, uh, he's come on fire for that final lap to get whatever was was left on the board and um yeah now third in the driver's standings can, can we just point out that lando norris is third in the driver's standings no one would have predicted that i don't think going into these first two races not bad for a driver who was afraid to use the brakes earlier in the weekend with uh, some mysterious uh, back or chest pains which uh you'd hope would be sorted out in time for hungry given that i feel like it would be much worse for him in, in on a circuit like that yeah i mean I, that's it's it's one of the worst possible things a, a racing driver can have because every time they're hitting the brakes they're pulling about five G. Um certainly up into turn three in, in Austria that's the case. And uh yeah, that must have been insanely painful. I heard him say afterwards that uh that he was so full of um painkillers that, you know, he, he was barely able to feel anything. Uh maybe we couldn't even even feel the elation of overtaking drivers on, on, on the final lap. But um but no, uh that that that's definitely a concern and uh I think and another interesting factor in this very unusual season is that the drivers are really going to have to look after themselves. If you have a problem that persists, uh, you know, that, that that could be a real problem when you get into whatever we are, you know, eight races in 10 weeks, going to be more. Now we've got Mugello added on and Russia. And, uh, you know, from what I've heard, that there's quite a few more that are going to come in quick succession after that. So, yeah, drivers going to have to look after themselves in, in, in many ways uh, this year. Uh, because of, you know, not only the threat of coronavirus and, you know, the fact that a number of teams have reserve drivers lined up. Uh, in case one of their drivers uh, can't race, but also, yeah, just from a pure muscle health uh, kind of position, you know, they they need to be on form uh, to be able to to be able to race. It really is going to be a challenge like no other season. I've just double checked. Lando Norris didn't even finish last year's German Grand Prix, so no idea what that was all about. <laughs> I look forward to finding out though. Uh, maybe it's just like uh, Lando. Maybe we'll just retire the car. What do you reckon, Germany situation? <laughs> um, no, I, I I I don't know. It's it's really weird, isn't it? I wonder whether they have like code for. But, but then I don't know why they would need code for that as well. Like that's the thing, you know, we always try and read into these mm. radio messages and, and often the, the answers are actually right there in front of us. You know, there was the one uh, from the first race, which was, uh, I think Bottas told chassis two one or something mm-hmm. like that. And everyone was like, it's multi 21, <laughs> it's multi 21. <laughs> you know, they're, they're telling him to stay in. And it was, it was something to do with like the overloading of, of suspension, I think, or, so, or, or, or something like that. Anyway, you know, it's, it's something related to the reliability issues they were having and settings that needed to be changed. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it is funny how, uh, how we kind of read a lot into it. But it's also funny how, uh, yeah, the Germany situation is, is what happened for, for Norris during that race. Well, we'll have to see. Maybe we'll have to wait until we get the next German Grand Prix, whatever that's going to be, to find out. and It'll all make perfect sense. An interesting follow-up to the Austrian Grand Prix. Just don't call it the Austrian Grand Prix. The Styrian Grand Prix, the Grand Prix of Steermark. Call it whatever you want. It was a decent race, and it was good to look back on it with you, Lawrence. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed that. That was Lawrence Edmondson from ESPN. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your social media channels. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're looking for an alternative take on the Styrian Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear us 
podcast discuss why the 90s wasn't all it's cracked up to be. My name's Michael Laminato. You can look me up on Twitter at Michael Laminato. And let's catch up again next week for a review of the Hungarian Grand Prix.